you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm 137, Psalm 137, and if you don't have a Bible but want to follow with us, uh, there are some Bibles nearby, and we'll be on page 521 in the black Bible you'll see nearby under the chairs. So page 521, Psalm 137, and this is uh, almost the end of our series through the Psalms, Collide, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. So I'm going to try to kind of hammer it home here the last couple of weeks, uh, and then we'll have a few weeks in, in kind of a just core values and mission type things we'll readdress, kind of identity of the church for just a, a few weeks, and then we'll jump into the book of Galatians, the New Testament letter of Galatians in the fall. So that's where we're headed. Um, man, life is hard, and one of the things that we do here at Grace Bible Church is expository preaching, uh, and so what happens is, is we let the Bible tell us uh, what we're going to talk about on Sunday morning. So expository preaching, an easy way to kind of understand what that word means, because it's not an everyday word, is, is that we're exposing the Bible. We're kind of like trying to crack it open and say, this is what it says. So we generally work through books of the Bible. We'll say, okay, we're going to be in this series for a while, and, and the, the Bible passage gets to pick the topics. I don't get to pick the topics all the time, right? So the elders and I, we pray about where we're going to be, and then we jump in that book for a while. Uh, and so this morning, we're going to be in the most disturbing psalm in the book of Psalms, okay? So, uh, so we're, we're in a hard psalm. I, my prayer is that this will minister to you, that it won't just be a distraction because of some of the hard stuff that is said. Uh, this is one of those passages that even myself, I've studied the Bible for a lot of years. I, I read this and I, I kind of cringe a little bit. It, it's hard words. So I just want to uh, say that up front. Um, say that I'm praying for you as you hear this message that, that God would minister to you through these hard words. Sometimes we just avoid hard stuff, right? But like I said, because we're doing expository preaching, we just kind of move through the text and say, what, what does the text have to say? Um, the psalm series has been a little different because I could have weaseled my way out of this and just not picked this psalm, right? Because we're not doing every single psalm. Uh, but I thought, you know what? We need to just, we need to hit the hard one. This is a tough one. I don't want to do it. So let's go ahead and do it. Um, so here we go, Psalm 137. Uh, it's a called an imprecatory psalm. So imprecation is old language for curse. So this is a cursing psalm, right? Sometimes if y'all have read through the psalms, you read stuff and then you're like, uh-oh, should I have said that, right? You're like, you feel bad. Maybe I shouldn't have said that out loud because it's basically a curse. And our New Testament perspective is, you know, is not to be a cursing sort of people, but to be a people that give grace, and so we want to balance this theologically with the concept that there is a day coming when God is going to finally judge all evil and wickedness. That's still hard for us to sort out because as a culture, we're pretty committed as a culture, not necessarily what the Bible says, but as a culture, we're, we're pretty committed to there being no such thing as evil, right? And never judging anyone. That's, a, you know, that's kind of a favorite concept that people rip out of the Bible and hold on its own. So there's no judgment of wickedness. There's no judgment of evil. So then when we see it in the scripture, it's shocking to us. It's, it's hard to know what to do with that. And what I would uh, communicate to you is that the scripture paints a picture of a God who is absolutely just and will judge evil. And he's also merciful and he forgives us of our sin. And so both of those things have to be held in tension. Um, so we'll read Psalm 137 together. Uh, it says, By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So this is an exile psalm. They're talking about grieving because they've been exiled. And they're in Babylon, which is present-day Iraq. They were exiled out of Israel. Israel was destroyed. So by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. 
On the willows there we hung up our lyres. These are like their guitars or harps. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you. If I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So there's the first curse. Second curse, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. That's the hard one. Um, Let me pray for us and ask God to teach us today. God, we ask for your help. These are hard words. God, we already live in a hard world. And so we pray for your help, that you would help us to understand what all this means, that you would teach us from Psalm 137 here, that we would understand the curses, but we would also understand the hope that you bring to us through Jesus. Help us to look through the lens of the love of God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm titling the psalm this morning, Remember Glory. Remember glory because throughout the phrases, remember and don't forget appear again and again. So there's an importance here that we should remember something, and it really talks about different things we're to remember. So just as a summary phrase, I'm going to say for the whole thing, remember God's glory. So life is hard, remember God's glory. Let that lift you up out of disease and death and brokenness and divorce and struggle and pain that you're living in day to day, but remember God's glory and that will give you uh, a view of what God is actually doing beyond your immediate pain and circumstances. So remember God's glory. Uh, Throughout the Reformation, there were these five, it's called sometimes the five solas, like grace alone and faith alone and um, Christ alone and scripture alone. One of them is to God be the glory alone. That was kind of a rallying cry uh, out of the Reformation. There are these confessions like the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession. And in their catechism, they say, what's the chief end of man? Like, what's, God's, what, what's man's purpose? Uh, and it is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. So a lot of Christians uh, agree that that's our purpose in life is to glorify God. That doesn't mean taking a non-glorious God and turning him into something glorious. That means recognizing him for who he really is. Uh, showing what he is really like, declaring how big and how great and how awesome he really is. And so glory is this kind of overarching concept that drips over all of this. And that's really what we do when we worship. We're, we're singing that God is good and he's gracious and we love him. And that, that's what we're doing. And we are to do that with all of our life. We are to glorify God with every part of our life. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, uh, because of God's mercy to you, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, like you're just everyday life glorifying him with everything you do. And so this can become an overarching thing for us to remember as, again, the text marches through these different specifics of what we are to remember. Um, how many of you ever heard of the guy, this great composer named Johann Sebastian Bach? Have you heard of Bach before? Okay, great. A lot of you have heard of him. He's, he's one of the world's greatest musicians. I'm not a classical music guy, really. I've, you know, I've purchased some of this music to try to learn, try to grow in my musical understanding, um, but apparently he's like the best, one of the best. A- and Bach would sign all of his stuff SDG, which is Soli Deo Gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. 
That's how he would sign all his work. And in the 1600s, nobody really knew him. He was just a dude working at a church in Germany, and nobody really knew who he was. He was just cranking out music, leading worship, uh, writing songs, you know, writing these cantatas. He, he was making music, and every time he would write something, he would sign at the bottom, to God alone be the glory. What's fascinating is that hundreds of years later, uh, there have been thousands of people in Japan coming to meet Jesus through the music of Bach. It's really amazing. So to this guy who lived an a unknown life, a life that many would have said was very simple and quiet and secluded, has had this incredible impact for Christ in Japan. I wanted to read from an article, and it says here, uh, Masaki Suzuki, founder of a school for Bach's music in Japan, says that Bach is teaching us the Christian concept of hope. And Yoshikazu Tokuzen of Japan's National Christian Council calls Bach nothing less than a vehicle of the Holy Spirit. His music is causing a revival. People are meeting Jesus through this music that is really much of it very scripturally based and speaking of Christ and who he is and what he's done. And so what I want to give you the picture of as we go into a very hard piece of music, one of the most difficult pieces of music in the book of Psalms, is I want you to have the perspective of when we remember God's glory, he can bring good things out of a difficult piece, out of a difficult work, out of something complex that might be hard for us to grasp as a, as a really mediocre you know, folk music lover. It's sometimes hard for me to even grasp Bach. It's hard for me to understand it, but it's amazing to see that there are people on the other side of the world hundreds of years later, coming to meet Jesus through this beautiful music that he's made for God's glory. And so our goal is that as we wrestle with this piece of music, Psalm 137, that we would ha- have as our goal to remember God's glory, to help elevate who he is and see who he is through all the difficulties in this text. The first specific that we are told to remember here is to remember to grieve. The first thing that I want us to see in the text is that we are to remember to grieve, and that's been a theme that we've kind of hammered on throughout the Psalms, because as modern Christians, uh, we like to be uh, happy, clappy Christians, and sometimes we forget lament. But the Psalms are full of lament. They're full of grieving, and as God's people, we should grieve. The series we've titled, Emotion Meets Truth in the Psalms. We should be emotionally honest, and we should grieve when things are hard. So look at verses 1 through 4. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. So this is a model for us that we should cry. We should be crying people. This is modeled again and again in the Psalms, and we need to recognize especially men. I'm speaking to you men in the room. You were probably taught like me that big boys don't cry. And I would say to some degree, it's probably a good thing to teach your son to suck it up and deal with it and not be a crybaby, right? I mean, there's there's some generalities there that are right and good. There are some gender differences that are okay. But I would also say, men, there's a model in the scriptures that, that men cry sometimes. You don't want to be a crybaby. You don't want to cry all the time, right? But, but we need to cry. We need to grieve. Women, women as well. We all need to grieve when things are difficult. Part of remembering God's glory is coming face to face with things that fall short of his glory and saying, this is not right. This is not the way things are supposed to be. Grieving over that. Mari did a great job speaking last week on PTSD, and one of the ways that you heal from PTSD is you stop denying all emotions. That's part of what chemically goes wrong in PTSD, is you have shut off your emotions completely. And part of the road to healing is to actually grieve. Is it a scary place to go? Yeah. 
but, but we need to grieve. So it says here, by the waters of Babylon, that's Iraq, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. So they're remembering the glory of God's place and God's people and the place where God came down and revealed himself. We talked a couple of weeks ago about the temple. At the center of the temple, the Holy of Holies, was God's law and God's mercy. That's the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat where the sacrifice was poured out and the Ten Commandments stored in that golden box in the Ark of the Covenant. That's God's law and God's grace, how God reveals himself among his people. Still today through the cross, God reveals himself as a God of law and a God of mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so they're remembering the place where God has revealed himself, Zion, the capital of God's people. They're remembering and they're weeping. And it says in verse 2, on the willows there we hung up our lyres. So these are their, basically their guitars, their, their harps, their musical instruments that they would use, our lyres. We hung them up. We, we were done. Verse 3, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. So their captors demanded mirth, right? Their captors were saying, dance, monkey. Sing one of those cute contemporary Worship songs for us, right? Celebrate for us. Do a little dance. Make us laugh. And they're like, how, how can we? How can we? They're grieving. They're crying. They're weeping. Verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So I, I want to back up a little bit and say that throughout this series, we've been saying part of how we cope with grieving is to worship and is to celebrate. We do both. And Christians live in this this tension where we celebrate God's hope in the midst of, of brokenness and pain. But that doesn't mean we don't grieve at all. Do you get the difference? And that's, that's the thing we really need to watch out for as Christians is we often think that means we only hope, we only celebrate, we never cry, we never grieve. To be Christian is to be happy, clappy all the time and never to come face to face with death and destruction and difficulty and pain in your life. But we are to grieve. Right, So here, they're in the, in the micro level saying, we're not going to worship, we're not going to celebrate, we're not going to dance, we're not going to have mirth, we're not going to play our instruments, we're going to grieve, we're going to weep. There, there's a time for grieving. There's an appropriate place for weeping and, and being sad. That is right and good, and that's the, that's the road to healing, is being honest. D- don't become the kind of person that thinks that to follow Christ and to worship him means to just live in denial of the reality of the world. That's, that's not a road to health. Honestly say, yeah, this is, this is terrible. This, this cancer is bad and I'm going to cry over it. This broken relationship is bad and I'm going to cry over it. This difficulty, this pain, this brokenness is bad and I'm going to grieve. I'm going to weep over it. That doesn't mean you stay there forever, but we've got to go there. We've got to go there. I have a, a picture here when I was hearing the picture of them hanging up their guitars, so to speak, this is a, an abandoned church, a church that's been hung up, so to speak, right? It's not being used. It's been set aside. This is just an old, torn-down church. It's an old black-and-white picture. You can see the plaster coming off the walls and uh, the shelving falling apart and the floor is torn to pieces. Uh, when we see a place where worship was happening and now worship isn't happening, that would be a cause of grief. That, that's where they are right now. Their, their capital, their gathering place of Zion has been destroyed, right? It's, it's been like blown up with a nuclear bomb and they've been pitched out to some other place. They've been cast into exile. And so this picture is a picture of an old abandoned church where worship isn't happening anymore. 
that should make us grieve. If you have a life, I, I love that we sang Psalm 42 again today because Psalm 42 talks about that rhythm of, of grieving and remembering better days. That, that's kind of part of the cycle in Psalm 42. I'm, I'm going to hope again. I remember a time when I did hope. I'm, I'm grieving that I'm not hoping right now, that I'm not in that place of worship right now, but I will worship again. Do you see the cycles built into that? And so we have to go through that place of grief and be willing to weep and say, this is bad. This is not the way things are supposed to be. This is difficult. So remember to grieve. And that's part of how you magnify God's glory as you say, this is bad. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So to make it most personal, at the most personal level, we should be in a state of grief over our own sin, that we have fallen short of the glory that God has made us for. But we can also do that with our circumstances and abuse and pain and difficult things that have happened to us. We can grieve over those things, that they fall short of the glory of God. Even as we remember that we're headed to glory, we're looking forward to a future where God is going to make things right and reconcile things. And that's part of the hope that God's people had in Zion. And that's the same hope that we have when we look back to Zion and see the cross. And we look back to Jerusalem and we see the cross. Just as they looked back to Zion, looked back to Jerusalem and saw the ark, the Holy of Holies, the place of God's law and God's mercy. We look back and see the cross, the place of God's law and God's mercy and forgiveness. So just practical implications. Remember to grieve. Here's some practical suggestions for you. I've shared with you all before. It's hard for me to cry. I was, I was raised in Texas. I was taught, you know, big boys don't cry and you, you just stuff it. Um, so that's been a prayer of mine in my adult life. God, help me to cry. Like, help me to actually grieve, just physically. Help me, help me to cry, that I would honestly grieve about difficult things. Um, so that, that'd be an application point. Cry when things are hard. Um, here's another one, maybe easier for some of you. Scream. Try screaming. Uh, I would say you might not want to do this in a social situation because it's not socially acceptable, right? But maybe by yourself or in the car or in a closet somewhere, scream and, and get it out. But emotionally express grief and pain and, and anger and difficulty. Um, curl up in a ball on the floor. Be alone. Maybe just being by yourself. Maybe you're with people all the time. You just need to be by yourself. Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe you're alone too much. Maybe you need to be with people and express that grief with some other people. Um, maybe you just need to be silent. Maybe you need some solitude. Maybe you need to be loud and rowdy and get it out and talk about it a lot. Maybe you need to write it in a journal. Maybe you need to just write down the stuff that you've gone through. For those of you that have gone through particularly horrible things, the way you cope is often by stuffing it and not expressing it. But it's, it's good to get it out. It's good to express it. You could read about others' journey of grief, right? Reading other books about how other people, Christian people, have dealt with grief and gone on that journey with God. Um, that's really helpful. Praying, just t- talking to God about it. That's, I mean, that's the number one thing I would say really in all of this is that all of it should be in communion with Him. As you cry, as you scream, as you're angry, doing that in expression to God. God, I don't understand. I don't get what's happening. This is painful. This is hard. But being honest with Him, having a real honest prayer life before God and and fasting. Fasting, we often think of just food, but really fasting is just going without any, anything. It could be anything in the world, right? That could be silence. It could be going without Facebook. It could be going without TV. It could be going without music or whatever it may be, whatever noise in your life or whatever 
pleasure in your life is making it hard for you to really honestly deal with the grief. Um, so that might be food, that might be some particular pleasure or coffee or whatever it is, but, but just for a season, not because those things are evil, everything can be you know, received from God as a gift, but just for a season, setting aside some of those things that maybe you use to, to mask your pain so that you can really deal with the pain, honestly. You don't give things up, uh, good things up forever, but you can give them up for a season so that you can grieve properly before God. The, the next thing I want us to look at is verses 4 through 6. Remember God's mighty acts. So you've got to go through the grief before you can then really hope. You've, you've got to name that this has fallen short of the glory of God before you can hope that there's going to be a restoration to the glory of God, right? So in this process of remembering God's glory, His goodness, His greatness, we, we grieve and then we remember his mighty acts, and that gives us hope that he's going to do great things again. Look at verses 4 through 6. So how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? So that, I kind of use that as the ending to the grief section. Now I'm going to use that as the launching pad for the remembering God's glory and God's mighty acts section. How shall we do this? Well, verse 5, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So he's, he's stating this negatively. This is kind of like a rhetorical device. So he's, he's saying, if, if I forget you, basically what he's saying in, in reverse is, I must remember you. I must remember you, Jerusalem. I must keep you as my highest joy. He's saying, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen. If I forget Jerusalem, now this is a musician talking, so he's saying it in, in his language. He's saying, let my hand lose its ability to play my instrument if I forget you because you're my real hope. It's not just pretty music. Pretty music isn't my hope. Jerusalem is my hope. God's work in the world. The God who comes down and dwells among us. Remember a couple of weeks ago, we said the most common promise of the Lord is I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you. That's the promise. That's what Jerusalem means. He came down and lived among us. And that's most clearly seen for us now today through the cross, this God who came after us and lived the perfect life we couldn't live and died a sacrificial death for us as our substitute. He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death once and for all so we can have hope in his mighty acts that he is putting away death. He is putting away grief forever. So we remember these things. It's saying, again, remember Jerusalem. Set Jerusalem above as my highest joy. And he's saying, if I don't remember Jerusalem, well, don't even let me play again. I don't want to play music ever again. I don't want to sing ever again. I don't want my hands to work ever again. It says, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. Because you are what makes music music. You are what makes it real remembrance of God's mighty acts. And so we are called on to remember what God is doing in the world. Here's a picture of Jerusalem. Here's a picture of the temple. Again, just to remind you in context, they're talking about um, God revealing himself through the Old Testament signs and symbols that God gave his people. And those signs and symbols all revolved around remembering God is absolutely just and God is a forgiving God that makes sacrifices for our sin. So go back through and just read the whole Old Testament now real quickly this week and look for those themes, okay? Look for those themes. God's law is just. He's righteous. He tells us how to live. But we fall short of that, and so he offers these sacrifices. Now, again, that's all wrapped up in Jesus, and that's all made clear now in the New Testament in Christ. God is 
just. He expects payment for sin, but He made that payment for us. And so in the New Testament, we remember this through communion. That's just a little symbolic painting there of bread and wine. We're going to share in communion together. Communion is us remembering that Christ is our Passover. Christ is the living embodiment, the resurrected Savior King who fulfilled everything that God was doing in the Old Testament through His temple in Jerusalem, in Zion. So when we remember Jerusalem, when we remember Zion, we're remembering even more. We're remembering even more how all of this has come true in Christ. He died for us sacrificially. In the Passover, they would come to Jerusalem and they would celebrate this festival in Jerusalem where they would say, God saved us out of slavery in Egypt. And this uh, perfect lamb took our place. And then when Jesus celebrated Passover with his disciples, right before his death, he said, I am the lamb. I am the sacrifice for you. It's my body broken for you. It's my blood poured out for you. So Jesus is at the center of what God is doing in the world that is symbolized here in our poetry in the Psalms through remembering Jerusalem and remembering Zion. If I don't set Jerusalem above my highest joy, let me not even sing because that's what we should be singing about. So celebration and singing is a discipline that we should be devoted to. Again, it's a little confusing the way it's poetically stated here because it's saying it all negatively. You know, basically, if I forget, you know, let this bad thing happen. But what it's saying is remember. Remember to celebrate him. Remember to set your mind and your heart on Jerusalem as your highest joy, on what God is doing in the world through Christ, that he has come to be with us, that he is our God. Celebrate. Not just uh, celebrating in gathered worship, which is important, which we do, which we're devoted to, but your whole life, all of your vocations. You don't, you don't have to be a musician to celebrate God, right? We always tell you, come and sing anyway, because God tells us to make a joyful noise unto the Lord, and joyful noises can be off pitch. That's okay, right? Uh, we'll just turn the speakers up and it'll be fine, but Come and celebrate with us, but also all of your life should be celebration. Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, because of God's mercy, because of the mercy he's shown to us in Jesus, offer your bodies as living sacrifices. This is your reasonable act of worship. This is how you worship, is offering all of your life. Colossians says it this way, do your work heartily as unto the Lord, not to men. So in your vocation, as a student or as a soldier or as a teacher or as a doctor or as a business owner, whatever it is that we do during the week, as a mom, as a dad, do we work heartily as unto the Lord because God's shown mercy to us? Is our work a symbol of remembering God's mighty act? God is a saving, righteous, holy, generous, gracious God. Do you work in a way that shows that to the world? Is your work done with excellence? Is it just? Is it gracious? Does it give life to others? We're to offer our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. Now this last section is the hardest section. Remember God's vengeance. This is hard for us because we don't like this side of who God is. As I said, we culturally have swung pretty far to a just ignoring the concept of justice and righteousness and vengeance and just focusing on grace. Uh, so for one, I want to remind you that I live in this culture too, so this is hard for me to read just like it's hard for you. I want you to understand that this is not me from this posture like lobbing this stuff at you, but I'm, I'm with you in reading this and going, ooh, that's hard, you know, like, ow, that's kind of hard to read. Uh, so I just want to explain that, that this is difficult for me, and so my prayer is that God would help us 
to make sense of this. We may not understand it perfectly, but maybe we could get one step closer to coming to peace with this. Um, in Romans, it says that uh, God reminds, well, actually, this is quoted several times in, throughout the scriptures, but he says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So vengeance is not ours, it's God's. We are to entrust God with bringing justice to the, Lord, uh, to the world. And we see that in the big picture, that that is where he's going. He's going to make things right. And so the, the day of the Lord, the return of Christ and the, you know, the consummation of what God is doing in the world is God uh, judging wickedness, is vengeance against evil. And if, especially those of you who have been a victim of evil, that should bring you some peace, that, that God is going to make things right, that, that God is going to reckon in the end. Uh, a, a scholar named Zinger says, modern Christians have forgotten or suppressed the idea that the day of judgment is to bring justice to the victims of injustice. A day when God will restore the world to what it should be and to confront the wicked with the reality of their sin and its consequences. He suggests that preachers have tended to denounce the sins of the weak while keeping quiet about the injustices perpetrated by the powerful. So most of these curses are against the powerful, like the uh, Babylonians or the Edomite tribe who as a whole nation have, have perpetrated injustices. And so part of what we learn in the curses or the imprecations of the Psalms, as I said before, these cursing Psalms are called imprecatory Psalms. Part of what we learn is that God hates sin. God really, really hates sin. And part of why it's hard for us to hear is because we don't really hate sin, right? Because it's easier for us to deal with sin in our own heart by just kind of winking and looking away. That's usually how we deal with it. But God was so serious about sin that he sent his son Jesus to absorb his wrath on the cross. God really, really hates sin. And I want you to see also in context that God hates sin because God loves us and sin is suicidal and self-destructive. God made us to flourish and enjoy uh, joy in him. And when we sin, we are destroying ourselves. God hates sin. God hates the parasite that sin is. Now, as we see these curses, also I want to read a quote from Calvin that I thought was kind of helpful here. He says, we must learn to wish well to all such as trouble us, to desire the salvation of all mankind. I thought this was nice because Calvin has a reputation for kind of being mean, right? Have you ever heard that if you've studied history? Everybody thinks he is a mean jerk. So he's saying we really should wish well to all, to wish the salvation of all mankind. Yes, and to be careful for every individual person. And yet, meanwhile, this will be no hindrance if our minds are pure and composed but that way we may freely appeal to God's judgment that he should destroy all that are past hope of recovery. That's the part we don't like, right? So he's saying we should genuinely wish salvation and grace to all. That should be our posture. And we should also make peace somehow in our mind that God is a God of justice and he's going to destroy evil. There's going to be a final reckoning. That, that day is coming. That's, that's where we're headed. Uh, in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, Peter says it this way. Well, verse 8 and 9. Don't, look, overlook this one, don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So it's framed for us that the, the time we live in is the time when judgment is being delayed. That God is patiently saying, come on, come to me. 
I forgive you. I've paid for your sins through Jesus. Judgment is coming. Vengeance is coming. Evil is going to be destroyed. But the time we live in right now is God saying, oh, I, I hate sin. I hate it so much that I placed the sins of the world on my son Jesus. So come to me. If you repent, your sins can be forgiven. If we don't repent, we'll, we'll pay the price ourselves. We'll take the full wrath of God. And so that's the posture of God as we look at this curse. So let's look at verses 7 through 9 as we think about God's vengeance and mercy together. Remember his vengeance. It says in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem. So the Edomites were a neighboring tribe who when the Babylonian Empire came in, the Edomites came down from their caves and dogpiled, made it worse, right? They just kind of added on to the destruction of Babylon. So Edomites and Babylon, two different people groups, Edomites were neighbors, and they just jumped in on what was happening and did horrible things. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. So they were like, yeah, yeah. Verse 8, O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. Blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. So remember again, Hebrew is, is parallel. They always parallel everything. So the one line defines the other line. So they're going to be repaid in the same way that they perpetrated these evils against Jerusalem, those evils will be perpetrated back towards them. So then the second blessing is, blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. So again, that's the horrible phrase that we're like, oh, I I don't even like that that's in the Bible, right? Uh, But in context, what it's saying is uh, they're going to be treated in that same way that they treated the Israelites. So they came through Israel, a place full of rocks, and they took their babies and smashed them against the rocks. And that was part of the destruction of Jerusalem when Jerusalem was exiled. And they're saying these same things are going to happen back against Babylon. And that's hard, like I said, that's hard for us to deal with. Somehow, biblically, God is uh, just, even though he allows evil men to do evil things. And so it's hard for us to make sense of this. I would put it in one lens, one context to make sense of this is that the most evil thing that ever happened in the history of the world is that Jesus was innocently condemned for the sins of the world. And God used that to bring goodness and grace to the world. And so that helps to frame a little bit how how God is not the author of evil, but God allows terrible things to happen and God uses those and reverses them. One of the great themes of scripture is great reversals. And so this psalm ends with this great reversal in Babylon, this evil empire that's all about doing evil things. It's going to be turned back on them. Their evil is going to be turned back upon themselves. Now, what do we do with, with children and the death of children? That's hard to deal with. And again, I, don't, I think almost every commentator is going to give you different perspectives on this. So when we end today, I don't think you're going to have like a tidy, oh, Dave explained that and now it all is easy and I like, I'll just go home and read this every day for my devotionals. It's still going to be a hard verse, okay? Um, but one thing that helps us to frame this is that if uh, the, the general scriptural picture we have is that children, although living under the race of Adam, there's only the race of Adam and the race of Christ, right? So there's the race of sinners and there's the race of forgiven sinners. There's only two kinds of people in the world. So there's a sense biblically that all children are born under the race of sin, under the tribe of sin. But there's also a sense in which God uh, shows grace to children, it seems, in a different way uh, than what he expects of adults. 
who are more conscious of what's going on. It's, that's, it's kind of murky in Scripture, but a real clear Scripture we have is where King David's child dies and he says, I know I'm going to see this child in heaven. So, so that's just kind of a basic posture we have. We just assume that children go to be with Jesus, that children get to immediately be in the presence of God, and that's just kind of something we assume, even though we still know children are sinners, right? If you have kids, you know children are sinners. So that's a tension that's hard, you know, it's hard to kind of make that out, and different theologians try to come up with paradigms, ages of accountability, and all kinds of things people come up with. But I'm just going to say, yeah, it's murky. We don't completely understand it. But part of what we understand when I look at a passage like this is somehow some evil people come in and destroy Babylon in the same evil way that Babylon destroyed Jerusalem and that somehow that's actually rescue for those children that would have otherwise been abused and preyed upon in a horrible and wicked culture. That, that brings me some peace. Again, it doesn't, it doesn't make this tidy. It doesn't make this easy. I, don't, I, don't have, I, I can't make complete sense of all of this, but that's one of the lenses that helps me as I look through this. Um, I think it's also important to remember uh, how much God hates sin. As I said before, we, we don't like to think about that because that makes us cringe at our own sin, but I have a picture here of a scalpel. Um, and I, I hope if you get cancer, we've got a lot of folks that have cancer right now, I hope that if you get cancer, your doctor hates cancer and wants to cut it out. I hope that if you have a disease or a tumor that your doctor wants to see it destroyed. And I believe that's how God sees sin and God sees wickedness in the world. He's destroying it. He's, he's cutting it out. And again, that's, that's hard, to, hard to make sense of all that. The, the Peter passage frames it as God is... Now patiently waiting, giving us a chance to repent, to be saved, to be healed through the blood of Jesus. But there is a gonna, there's going to be a final day of reckoning where all evil and wickedness will be removed, will be cut out. So the picture of the scalpel is not just to gross you out. It kind of grosses me out even looking at it. But the picture of the scalpel is just to have a, a feeling of seriousness and weightiness about sin. Um, I don't ever want a doctor to cut on me. I have some stuff I need to have done in my gums I've been putting off for 10 years because I just don't really want anybody to cut my gums, gums open, right? It just sounds horrible. Sorry, I'm sorry I even said that out loud. <laughs> I don't want to think about it anymore. But it's serious, right? What a doctor is saying when he says, I need, to, I need to get a knife involved, is he's saying, this is really serious. This is killing you. This is eating away at you. You're not going to thrive, and so we need to remember that God's vengeance is, is serious because he loves us. Because sin is not the way things are supposed to be. It doesn't, doesn't make this an easy passage. But we remember that God hates sin much more than we do. So an application is that we should hate sin. We should really hate sin in our own life. We should desire for God to change us and transform us and make us new. Because it's destructive our addiction to self, our worship of other gods, our loving and adulterating ourselves to money and relationships and power and respect, those things are killing us. And he's saying, come, come to me. You'll find life in me. And we should allow him to have vengeance on that sin. Let me pray for us and then we'll share in communion together. God, we, we confess that we don't understand all of this. We understand that you're good, and we understand that you are just, and that you hate sin, and we understand that when we look at Jesus, we see a picture of you taking sin upon yourself.
And so we thank you for that. We pray that as we partake in communion, that you would make that real for us, that you would be spiritually present in what we do to remind us of your goodness in the gospel. We thank you for your spirit. We thank you that you haven't left us as orphans, but you've come to us, as Jesus said in John 14. And we pray that you would help us to live in newness of life because you're present with us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.